episode of First Strike. First time we got all four of us on this new setup. Uh, it's going to be hard to see if we're going to be able to fit five vents when we, we need Doug to get in here. Might lag like crazy uh, even now. So people in chat, let us know if things are going well. And while people are doing that, giving us some feedback, I uh, just got to plug our sponsor, face-to-facegames.com, the number one uh, place to get your Magic the Gathering singles. Uh, first, got to start off with congratulating Brian. Welcome back, Brian. Uh, you were sick last episode, and then there was some awesome news that uh, you got on the SCG front page, and we got to see a nice profile picture of you in a suit. I was, I was surprised. Dude, you, you do know you do know that I'm a lawyer, right? Like I, I quite often wear a suit, and like it's just kind of part of my life. I know that when I show up for this podcast, I tend to look like a schlub, but uh, I, I put on a suit quite often, and uh, I don't really let myself be photographed. I find so that's actually a pic from uh, my wedding. <laughs> that was the last time I allowed someone to photograph me, so uh, that's what we had to use. But yeah, it's it's cool to be on SCG. Um, you know, a site I've read for a long time. I'm just glad more people are getting to listen to all the podcasts, you know, the game podcast. I think the game podcast kind of leads people to First Strike as well, so it's always good to get more eyes on, on both the shows. Well, I, I think obviously the, the game, and, and my unquestionably, is one of the number one, possibly the number one podcast you should listen to, especially if you're into competitive play, like without question. And for me, it was like about time. It, it, it comes in waves when like SCG adopted Yo MTG tabs back in the day, and it took a long time before CFB brought Marshall into the fold on the front page. And now it's great to see the game uh, with Jerry's connection with Cedric and SCG. I thought this was supposed to happen a long time ago. Finally, it does, and it's awesome to see you on the front page and get that just much deserved exposure, B man. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Yeah, I don't know what. You know, I, I don't handle the business side of the game. I just show up and talk. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the holdup was, but I, I, am, I am stoked to be there. Like I said, more eyes are always good. <laughs> okay, we'll start off with uh, some modern. Uh, some modern results uh, were uh, just were posted this past weekend or, and some today, uh, namely the first face-to-facegames.com Open Plus event. These are 5K events where the top two finishers not only get like the winner's prize, but they also get uh, invitation to the SCG Season 2 Invitational, which is sometime in December, I believe, in Roanoke. And on top of that, they each get $400 uh, towards their travel to Roanoke. So that's pretty sweet. And uh, as usual, it was held in Toronto. Uh, lots of people showed up, over 150-plus players, um, as they often have at these events. And uh, Eldrazi Tron uh, took it down. I, I, I feel like, uh, Rob, we're being trolled somehow since the episode. Like, ever since we started the show, Eldrazi Tron keeps doing well. Uh, does this surprise you? Like, in, in what type of metagame is, is Eldrazi Tron supposed to crush? <laughs> Metagames without Blood Moon. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't even know if it's... I wouldn't consider it crushing, but it's like has a very ridiculous actual win rate for face-to-face -face open events. <laughs> like, I don't remember... I can't remember a face-to-face -face open event where it didn't win, actually. <laughs> so, uh, good, good on uh, Queen Greg. I mean, I definitely, given how the top eight looks, um, he probably just kind of avoided playing Stefan on the white red prison deck, and that's how he ended up in the finals. And, and given where the rest of the decks are, I think he has a pretty good matchup or a reasonable matchup, anyways, against the rest of the decks that are there. So, yeah, I mean, the deck's good. It's just, I don't know. I, I guess if you know what you're doing, it, it seems like a, a reasonable deck to take to an event, just like Affinity is, right? Where if, if people aren't dedicating the hate for it, then you've got a very reasonable chance to do well. This particular top eight looks like it's very low on Ghost Quarters. So that could be a reason why he ended up winning. And, and people have said, like, Death Shadow is not a very favorable matchup. And we just see, like, one copy in the top eight. 
Uh, we, we actually see it. Joseph Lombardi, another Lombardi actually dominated. That's my that's my cousin. <laughs> actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, was playing Odrazi Tron as well. Um, yeah, this this top eight is very interesting. Um, we keep seeing these diverse uh, top eights, and if we move towards uh, the SCG one, which is taken down by, I guess. Um, Shoutouts to old Scotty Mac, Team Geist, uh, Just Kai, <laughs> with uh, three Geist in the main. Um, pretty standard list. Uh, we've seen this list come and go. Um, I'm interested, again, Rob, if, if you think that, um, yeah, what type of metagame do you think? Oh, well, we see Dan Muster also finishing 14th with Eldrazi Tron. So the Master, again, putting up an excellent result. But seeing two Jeskai control decks facing in the finals, they're not exactly the same 75, but their main decks are, are quite similar, right, Rob? Yeah, they're like real close together, actually, in terms of the, the card selection. They're like four cards off, and two of the cards that they're off by are like decisions in what red blue land they want to run. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I haven't had a lot of time to play online lately, but. This was actually a, a list that I was looking at trying out uh, to see if it was a better um, response to how the online metagame uh, was for, for where to take blue-white control, just because it's a little more proactive, um, which the online metagame seemed like it, it wanted that from you. This is probably also a better deck to take to an event other than blue-white control as well, since like in time rounds, sometimes it's very difficult to close out a match. Uh, with blue-white control, especially if you lose uh, game one. But yeah, this list, list looks a lot like a blue-white control deck. You just like shave a lot of the more like very controlling cards, like Supreme Verdict, and just you know add more proactive threats that you would have in the sideboard of your blue-white deck, like Geist of St. Traft. And you're just going to be a lot better against the aggro decks, because you get to run four Bolt and some number of Lightning Helix with Electrolyzes there as well. So yeah, I, I really like the, the look of this list, and I'm glad that it did well, and now I, I can take it for a spin online without having to do a lot of work trying to figure out what my 75 should be. <laughs> <laughs> we had Tom Ross in, in fourth with eight rack, bring that back. And again, I, I'm always like looking out for some reason. I just think for a while, for the longest time, I thought Shadow would be uh, public enemy number one, and we see, I think, about five, six in, in the top 32. So again, not like dominant by any means, a, a nice mix of elves and even Jund, which I haven't seen in a long time, do well. There, there's no, uh, I was hoping to see some blue-red breach uh, that we've seen do well online, but I guess maybe it's just uh, a one-trick pony and hasn't doesn't have any sustained uh, power. I haven't seen it again posting results. Yeah, I didn't have really good, good success with it online. I kind of, I'm off it now. <laughs> Um, Brian, any thoughts as to any of these results? No. I don't, I don't make modern conclusions anymore. Like, what can you take away from this? It's so hard to derive anything from modern results. It's like, oh, that guy probably played pretty well that day and had good sideboard plans. But as far as, like, what decks are dominant, what decks to play, I don't, I don't know. I don't have any answers. I mean, like, this points you in the direction of Jeskai Control, right? And then you'll look at the next tournament results and there'll be no Jeskai Control whatsoever. And, you know, some goofy, like, you know, collected company will win the next uh, event. And there's almost no collected company here. So I don't know anymore. I really don't know how to analyze modern. Um, I think there's a ton of viable decks. I think six Grixis Death Shadow decks is actually still, like, metagame dominance for the most part. Like, that's a very high percentage. It's still probably the safest choice, but everyone has a plan for it now. And that's the thing about Modern is, like, when people are testing for a Modern tournament, you, you can't go over every sideboard plan, every possible matchup. Like, they get their big four or five down, and, and they know how they're sideboarding. They have valid plans for all those matchups. So, like, anytime you choose one of those decks, you do wear the target to some extent. And that's probably why Death Shadow hasn't been completely dominant. I, I still think it's the best deck, but everyone has a viable plan for Death Shadow. It's one of the five decks that everyone prepares for. Unfortunately, the format's like 32 decks, so really metagaming like that doesn't do you a whole lot of good. Um, so you kind of 
you're kind of bearing some of the brunt of the format, uh, maybe unnecessarily. There's probably just as good of a choice out there if you can find something a little below the radar. For a long time, Modern was just about picking the best combo deck for every week. Like, you just had to figure out what that was. Uh, it's a little different now. It's kind of like picking the best mid-range deck every week. Seems like the more viable thing to do. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a, it's weird to call Jeskai Control mid-range, but it kind of is. Like, all these decks have the ability to go proactive very quickly, you know, with the sole exception of blue-white control, which we don't see here, I believe. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have any hard takeaways for you, but I, I would just say keep doing what you're doing. If you're playing modern and doing well, stick with it. If you're not doing well, try a new deck. You'll find something eventually. Yeah, just pull a Dan Muster. Just play Eldrazi Tribe. Top 16 or multiple top 8s. Uh, uh, shout out to Matt Nelson in the chat who says it seems like a metal world Eldrazi Tron flourishes is one where people have pushed Titan Shift out, which is an interesting comment because we don't see any shiftless at all in the top 32, I think, or, or the top 8 of the face to face games open plus. And Titan Shift had been something that was like creeping up like at the number one metagame spot. If you go to check out MTG Goldfish, Titan Ship was number one. Now it's moved down to number three. And so, yeah, it, come, it ebbs and flows. Like, everything ebbs and flows. There really isn't. Like, my, like, I didn't even realize that there was no collective company. Actually, I see Escape Ship in 20th at the SCG. Just had a bunch of L's and Infect making an appearance in 32nd. And, uh, yeah, even an old Brian favorite at Nauseam. Um, so, Rob, you're going to try the Jeskai. That's your first go-to uh, from, from this weekend, out of all yeah. the from this weekend? Yeah, I mean, like, if you just look at the main deck, you can kind of see how this, this deck would have reasonable matchups against a lot of what the popular decks are trying to do in Modern. So, like, against Tron and Control, like, you have Geist, and you can proactively stop them from doing what they want to do while putting damage on the board in Spell Queller, and then you just get, like, that Bolt Snap Bolt package to uh to put them out of the game quickly which is also really good against death shadow which is still prominent online right and then having like helix bolt electrolyze and path with i guess your your counter spell suite as spells and encrypted command is also just very good against decks like affinity or uh or burn or or whatever or these coco decks too right so um yeah i don't know it just it looks like it's kind of found a sweet spot in the meta where this might be here to stay for a little while until there's another large uh, meta shift. I mean, I don't love that it doesn't get to run any tech edges or, or ghost quarters, but um, it seems to not need them, so that, that's interesting. I guess if this deck becomes popular enough to push some of the other decks down, you could definitely see Titan Shift coming back, because uh, this deck has a terrible match against Scape Shift. And, and Red Green Tron as well, or probably any, any Tron. I remember that back from long time ago, and I don't think much has changed. <laughs> All right. So uh, I hope to hear from you on the uh, blue-white. Right? I, might, I might give it a spin because I've been tired of, of playing blue-white and not and feeling that I want to be more proactive, like you said, uh, with this deck. So I'm You get gonna... to finish your leagues in like half the time. So even yeah. if you're losing at a slightly less rate, your profitability per hour will go up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just... I have to admit, though, this past weekend, I did play a PPTQ. did not go well at all. So when Sevless Chance, uh, part of our nation, took a picture of me, posted it in the group. So I'm playing uh, Blue-White. Um, yeah, I didn't do well at all. But uh, I played a mirror match and really enjoyed it. Really, um, something I've noticed that I used to care about was I would try to counter, like in, old, in the old days when I was playing mirror match, which counter everything possible, like burnout, cryptic commands and everything, fight over spells that, or use my snapcasters over irrelevant things because I didn't want my opponent to like draw a card. And uh, over time, I, I think I've realized that I just completely overvalue that stuff. And the whole concept of just countering the key spells was something that took me a while to, to learn. And I, I don't know if that was the same for you, Rob, as you progressed. as a Yeah, for player. sure. I mean, you basically can't be successful at at a control deck over the long haul uh, until you master that skill in whatever format you're trying to to play in. Because, yeah, you, you just you throw away so much equity when you mana leak something you should have let through, right? It's just like four turns later, they'll play something that you need to counter, and you're like, yeah, uh, it sticks. <laughs> Game. <laughs> and that's it, yeah. So it, it makes a big difference for sure. 
I, I think a lot of it comes from when, at least when I played, the assumption was that I can counter it this now, I'll probably draw, like the mindset was I'll probably draw to another counter, right? Like I'll, I'll probably get another League or Cryptic Command, but it's like most of the time I don't, I'll draw like a bunch of lands and other spells, and then I'm screwed because I can't counter the key spells anymore. And, and over time was when I realized to be more careful uh, with, with my Cryptics and my Snapcaster and Cryptics. Um, that took me a while to learn and then I, w I think i was losing a lot of control matches because I, I didn't recognize that yeah yeah no totally you, the removals like that as well right like if you pass something that you should have you know waited until you had a less flexible removal spell like if you have i don't know lightning helix in your deck and you wait you blow a path on something early and then they play something with indestructibility or whatever in, in the matchup then yeah you, you need to be very careful about that and control will definitely punish you for making the wrong decisions on your side of the board <laughs> uh, moving on to uh, back to arena last week we didn't have a resident esports expert Brian in the room um, I'm excited to just pick your brain on people asking us like when I've been asking for topics on Twitter what our thoughts are if this were to be you know people streamed uh, they use this as the streaming platform for pro tours or, or GPs uh, to try to get more viewers to the game and I never asked you even privately, uh, what your answer or what your uh, what you think about it? So I want to hear it for the first time right now. Yeah, I guess I was surprised at how negative people were about it. Like, there's a lot of uh, venom and vitriol, and it's like I just don't get exactly where it comes from. Like, I know it didn't look absolutely spectacular. It's in pre-alpha, like bashing it for not being absolutely clean and like. We, we always knew it was going to be a Hearthstone-esque representation of Magic. Um, a streaming-friendly platform, which is what the game needs to survive in kind of the esports era. Um, so it, it's full rules, so we're not upset about that. Um, it's, it's seemingly functional, like they played games of Magic and it looks fine. I don't know how like the, the chess clock or all that stuff's going to work, but it seems like they're thinking about it. And actively taking community feedback and thinking about the type of things that should set up this program in the future. So is it great now? No, I mean, I, I don't think it should be. I think it's a fine platform that acknowledges some of the things that they had to address. And to the people who are like really adamant that this is a failure, I, I don't understand exactly what you wanted them to do at this stage. Did you expect them to have finished software? I think I would rather they take their time and get this program right then have something to present to us right now um the thing that i don't get is people asserting that magic online will like ultimately stay i keep hearing the reasons you're saying that this should be the case i know they're saying that this won't uh you know magic arena isn't going to reach back um but regardless there's no incentive for them to cat. They're, they're not going to run two platforms, invest resources into two platforms, especially if one is just strictly superior to the other one. And if you don't think standard and drafting is what like really motivates the moto economy, it is. And the whole economy is based around standard and drafting. So if Arena, and this is completely discounting the possibility that Arena could reach back and could have like commander functionality, could eventually go back to vintage. Let's just get that possibility off the table. For that could happen. We'll ignore that for the time being. If Commander is just success, or excuse me, if Arena is just successful at presenting a standard and limited environment, why are you playing on Moto? And like, are they trying to do it? They're just going to push all the pro play through that? Well, why? If you have a better platform that works better, that looks better, that streams better, no one's going to stand from the, for them using the inferior platform just to preserve this bizarre promise that they're making. And I understand they don't want to crash the economy. That's why they're not saying that Moto's going away, guys. If you can't figure that out, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Moto cannot last in, unless Arena is just a complete failure. The program crumbles. They never even release. Yeah, Moto's staying around. Right now, Moto needs to stay around. If Arena launches, does what they have only announced that it will do so far, not even thinking about the other capabilities it has, if it just does what they have announced it to do, Moto will someday go away. I'm not saying in one year. I'm not even saying in five years. But to think Moto exists in perpetuity, if Arena is a successful program, I don't know how you're possibly coming to that conclusion. And I see people doing it. It's crazy, just because Wizards is like, Moto isn't going anywhere. 
Well, they have to say that. They can't say the opposite or the economy just stops right now. So you have to use some forward thinking here and really think about a company's goals. There's no way Modo continues in perpetuity if Arena launches successfully. And do you think, like, what do you think of that once it's gone, like, them using it at the PT? It depends. It depends where the software is at. I mean, I'm not willing to declare that to be the correct thing right now, but if the software is optimized and it, if this becomes the de facto best way to play competitive Magic the Gathering, which it could potentially do, um, because you eliminate a lot of the ambiguity of rules decisions, you know, things like the crew uh, incident we had a while going back. If you have a robust platform for playing digital Magic, it should be the Pro Tour way of playing the game. Is that going to be the case? We don't know yet. Um, even things like bluffing. If you're sitting across from a player and like your screen is just below your eye level, right? And you're looking over and you see the other player, some of that still exists. Like you can still read body language and still think about, you know, anyone who's played a lot of online poker understands you can read bluffs in online poker. They don't go away because you took away someone's face. And this platform could have the exact same thing. So uh, it, it depends if it's executed properly. If it's executed to do the things they claim it will do, it will someday become the Pro Tour platform, I believe. Whoa. Vince, uh, what do you think? Like, people are just talking about, like, their concerns that someone might, like, if this happens, someone might misclick on, on a stream match. And is that, is that even a concern? I mean, like, you can misclick in any other game. I was going to bring that up as a counterpoint to what Brian's saying about, you know, if you take the Pro Tour format from paper to digital, you eliminate, you know, a lot of sources of causes of error, but you've introduced a new type, right? Which is, oh, I just F2 through my combat step. Can, we, can I, like, judge call so we can go back and fix that, right? Like, you're going to have situations like that happen now, which basically could not happen um, in paper. And you're also going to have client issues. Like, I'm, I'm thoroughly not convinced that this client will be faultless by the time they introduce it at a professional level. Just based on prior experience with other Magic software. I, I don't think that they'll be able to, to, with full certainty, be able to say this client will not have any issues at any point. So I think there's always going to be inherent different types of issues that are going to come up with with um, bringing this type of product to the professional level. I don't think it's necessarily worse, um, but I, I think it's it's it might be like a lateral change in the type of problems that we start seeing. Um, and Brian made a point way earlier, kind of at the beginning of his comment about MTG Arena that I wanted to touch on real briefly. Um, I think the reason why a lot of people, and this is myself included, have an issue with MTG Arena isn't with the execution. Like, obviously, I'm not expecting them to show me something that looks better than Hearthstone 12 months into them designing it, right? I'm not expecting them to show me something that looks better than Hearthstone pretty much ever, because they're just not going to be able to compete on that level, but... My issue, and I, I don't want to beat a dead horse because I talked about it last week, is more of a strategic issue. Like, I don't think that this is what makes Magic as a brand win in the future. I don't think this is how Magic becomes an eSport. I don't think this suddenly creates an eSport for Magic. I, I just don't think that this is really congruent with what Magic could provide as um, as a game that it is the way it is now. But yeah, other than that, I think... Given the strategy that they're pursuing, I think Brian's right on all those points. MTGO will not exist long-term. This will definitely replace it. There's no reason why they should exist at the same time or would. Um, and I fully expect them to very aggressively integrate this into the professional tournament scene. They've, they've almost told us that right off the bat in terms of them talking about this in tandem with esports. Like They, they want this to become... Um, sort of the face of digital magic, obviously, because it's just so much nicer than the face of MTGO. So, yeah, expect this to be kind of integrated at almost every level of, of magic play, just because it's what Wizards is trying to do to market their product. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, Rob, any final thoughts on this topic? Yeah, uh, I think it was Ryan Spain said in an interview that they've been working on this software for like two years already. <laughs> and all they have is one set with some minimal amount of graphics laid into like effects for the cards or whatever, right? And a full rules engine. Like I don't feel that that's how long it should take if this was their priority. So I agree with Vince that 
I'm worried about the quality of the software and how soon we're going to get there. But I disagree with Brian in that Moto's going away kind of soonish. I think given that it took them 10 years to get one set active in MTG Arena, you probably have like at least another two to three years before they're at a point where they're looking at ways to start trending MTGO down. But I, don't I, agree think it's that... I don't think it's soonish. <laughs> I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it's just eventually. That's my only point. Oh, eventually. for sure. Yeah, it just, yeah, it'd be, it'd be crazy to think they're uh, long-term going to gonna run two clients. Yeah, that's just, uh, I mean, that's literally double the cost for assisting, <laughs> cannibalizing a revenue stream. <laughs> So yeah, it'll be interesting. I wonder how they're going to manage hoarding people, or what what the deal is going to be there. But it, yeah, I think you have some time. Like I wouldn't fire sale moto just yet. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> um, but be prepared. Be prepared. I think someone in the nation messaged me uh, last week saying like you know they're getting ready to just. You know, they have to they have to predict when exactly they're gonna announce that it's not coming back and just like time it time it right to sell their collection. Yeah, once they make that announcement, like your collections were zero dollars, right? So you definitely <laughs> want to be out before then. <laughs> it's like instant. Like the, what, that announcement comes out, it, everything's worthless. Like, yeah, it's basically like you're holding stock and the company's like sitting at a very high peak and then all of a sudden they just like, hey, we're bankrupt, everything's at zero dollars. Thanks, bye. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Uh, moving to another topic that's been uh, going on on Twitter, just because Richard Hagon, Hagon rather, tweeted out, call to action. MTG fans, if you love Limited, share your ideas for better coverage. Send to rich at cfbevents.com, planning 2018. Right now, that's pretty cool that uh, it's something that everyone has acknowledged. The stats show it. People are just not as interested at watching Limited events as they are. Uh, constructed portions of, of PTs or, or just constructed GPs, there's definitely uh, a huge gap in terms of the numbers, and he's asking for feedback. And then some, I would just mention some of the more interesting things. There's a whole thread of, of people having different opinions. Todd Anderson mentioned how, you know, honestly, it's the nature of format that's boring. Beating people with grizzly bear, bears doesn't have the same appeal as constructed. Okay, someone else said, stop printing vanilla cards. Uh, Six booster seal replaced by full box sealed. Adjust mulligan rules uh, to prevent to limit or prevent mana screw and flood. And Willie Edel even said, oh, "Very unpopular opinion, but to get more players and viewers, limited shouldn't exist in the most important MTG events, PTs, and worlds." Um, I'll start with you, Rob. What do you think about all this? Um, yeah, it's nice that he's asking for feedback. That's that's what's cool. Yeah, I mean, like, this is the right approach, maybe the wrong venue, but I guess at least they're being transparent because, like, tw the people that are most vocal on Twitter are usually the people you don't want to hear from. <laughs> As you can see by, if you just read through the thread, you'll see some very interesting uh, comments from some very abrasive people. But hopefully he finds some people with real good constructive feedback that they can use. It was interesting to see a bunch of leading pros really kind of harp on the fact that limited is a part of pro magic and that they I, I don't know if they want to see it just leave from coverage or if they want to see it leave completely it was like un, kind of unclear what their um like what their stance was given like what they were saying because it seemed like they wanted to actually just remove from the event then you don't need to worry about covering it right and it's like, this is a pretty large part of how Watsi sells packs, you know, throughout the year without draft. I, I feel that significantly pack sales would be way, 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 way down, which then makes standard way more, you know, expensive. It, you, you know how it works, right? So um, I, I definitely don't think that's the right approach. I think that what Rich is doing is the right approach, though. Figure out how to make limited more engaging for people that only are interested in standard. I mean, if, if that's you, though, like if you're the kind of player that doesn't care about limited, you think it's stupid, you only care about the constructed formats, you really are missing out on the best part of Magic. Like, I do not think it's comparable. Draft and Sealed is way more interesting and engaging than constructed. Um, and if you put in the time to become good at it, it will level up parts of your game 
that you did not understand were gaps for you. And that's like probably one of the only ways you'll you'll level up from where you are if you're purely stuck in, in standard only mode or modern only mode. I don't know what the answer is though. Like I have no suggestions for how to make it interesting. <laughs> I, I I like it. I like watching limited coverage, but I mean I'm also a draft fanatic, so I'm not the target market for for why it's bad. <laughs> I mean Vince is just pure limited. So how do they make it more interesting? There's there's a definitely gap. People aren't just don't really care. And I don't know if they even care about the when when they film over the shoulder of a pro player and, and they're going through their pick order. It might be compelling content for someone like you, Vince, but I don't know for the majority of players. Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm probably more of an exception than a rule in that I usually watch the limited portion and then turn off the constructed portion of PTs. So I'm not really like the major audience for this type of question. But I think the first thing I want to touch on is this might be like a bit of a hot take, but as much as it's great that we keep seeing Watsy going like, hey, give us your feedback. Let us know what you think. There's a point where you do it so much that you kind of lose confidence in Watsy's ability to come up with ideas internally. When they're just like, hey, what are, what's everyone's idea on this? What do you guys think we should do with this? Like, maybe you should have some level of integrity internally to be able to go, this is right, this is wrong, we should be doing this, we shouldn't be doing this. But that being said, I think this is the type of topic that because the range of answers can be so broad, it can be really difficult to come up with the right answer. So I like this approach right now. I just think they've been doing it quite a bit recently and it's uh, raising a red flag for me. But specifically with this topic, um, there's so much they can do. Like they've they've done actual nothing to make limited enjoyable and it's still engaging for, for me. So just the fact that there's like been, I think, very little effort on them trying to sell limited to people is a good sign that they're now looking because I think there's a lot of opportunity. I think primarily the area that that they need to really work on is clarity like i need to be able to see every card that's in a pack when someone opens it i need to be able to see what they're picking i need to be able to see their previous picks i want to be able to interact with the draft i want to know what's going on around the table i want to know that the guy two seats beside him just opened a glory bringer and he's in red these are the kind of things that like interest me when i'm watching limited because i want to know why a pro is making a pick that i wouldn't have picked and that's like level zero upgrades they can make for limited coverage, right? That's just, they already know the packs, they've seen them, they have to make them, right, when they do their little stupid envelope thing. So they could already import all of that data into some kind of viewer that helps players see all that kind of stuff. And again, I'm not going to talk about logistics for all this stuff because that's not my job. I'm not a programmer or involved in it, so they can figure it out on their end. But um i think another thing that they could do that would be really huge and i used to do this on my stream actually and people loved it was live voting on picks why can't i watch someone draft see all of their picks and we just have a stat on the side showing what the what the chat or what the the audience thinks should be the pick that's an interesting topic and it's something you can just keep touching on every every pick oh weird 80 percent of the chat thought he would pick thresher lizard and he actually picked pathmaker initiate now we know something, and now the chat That's feels a like sick idea. now the chat feels like they're actively involved in the draft, and they're going to start watching it. And now they're invested in that deck, right? They they've been watching every pick, they've been thinking about what they would pick, they're learning, and now they're engaged. And I think those are like super easy and straightforward things that they can do. Some more like higher level stuff. I would like to see them focus more on storylines in a draft. Like stick with a pod, follow the pod. I don't give. Excuse my language, I'm not going to say it, actually. I don't care about other pods that I haven't watched the draft in, because at that point it's just random cards, like this is what Todd Anderson's talking about, just grizzly bears hitting each other. But I do care about watching a person who I saw draft and seeing a table and seeing how it plays out. And I think they can make that more engaging for people who might care a little bit less than I do by just going, you know, this is a really interesting pod because of X, Y, and Z, because these picks that went around and that kind of stuff, so... Follow the pod, interview the players between rounds, talk to them about how they think the draft went, do more of those live looks and that kind of stuff, and just make the actual draft more data-driven. I want to see all of the cards in each pack, and I want to see where they're going, that kind of stuff. Hmm, that's some great, great ideas, like adding the interaction, like you mentioned, like a lot of uh, TV shows that I watch now that are incorporating even like Twitter polls and stuff like that, just getting the audience into it. Oh, Brian, do you have any... Thresher Lizard. Thresher <laughs> Lizard. Brian, do you have any ideas that uh, people haven't mentioned before that you think might be doable and, and easy to implement? 
Dude, I've I've solved this. Seriously, <laughs> I'll I'll fix limited coverage for you right now. Someone go get rich. Actually, I'll wait. I'll wait a minute. I'll just say I'll give a little aside while someone's getting rich. I'll make I, a new every box now for and then. Every now and then, you guys do something that's like super Canadian, and I I love it every time. Like when Vince says Zed, it means the world to me. Actually, it gets me so excited <laughs> when, when I hear that. Um, or if you guys just like drop a natural A, I get so excited every time. But anyway, now hopefully someone has gotten rich. And I will solve this problem for you. The, you're only covering one pod in each draft section. That's it. One pod. Well before we go to these pods, we have identified every card that's in every pack that is being presented to this pod. Around the pod, which will be isolated. You can't let this pod out into the wild. You need to take their phones away, you need to accompany them to the bathroom, but this pod is isolated. It's just the cost of being the feature pod. It's okay. It's not going to ruin your tournament experience. These guys will be fine. Um, but you can't let them out into the wild once you start covering them, basically. I don't know if it needs to be like a soundproof booth or, or whatever, but there's ways to do it. It can be handled. Um, so you've now tracked every single card and every single pack around the table. Each person has an iPad. They have all the packs laid out in front of them. They already know which, per which pack they're going to see in their first pack. They hit the card someone takes, and it just all the data is passed around. So they already know what's in the next pack, what's in the next pack. This enables Vince's poll idea to work, which is a great idea. It gets the chat actively involved because you've, you've tracked each pack, and before the next pick comes, they already have a list of the cards that are going to be in that pack because they've, they're live picking each pack. And the refractory period, the passing period, allows them to move to the next point in the data. So it, it already works. It, it's, perfectly, um, it, it's, it's perfectly doable. And this is also going to allow us, when we get into the actual games, everyone's draft deck is already available. I can see every single card in their draft deck. I can also see their entire draft. I know exactly how they played the draft out for these eight people who are isolated in this pod. And now you build the stories around that. You interview only these eight people between rounds. You talk to the person who's in, you know, you talk to the two 2 0 guys right before they go into their matchup. All right, we're about to see the, the clash between Ben Stark and uh, Marcio Car Carvalho. We've talked to both people. Here we go. You've built the drama of this pod as you lead in to the 2 0 match to win the pod. Everyone knows the decks, they know the players, they know the game. And it'll be so much more engaging and so much more interesting than looking at random limited match. Like, it just doesn't mean anything. Random limited match doesn't mean anything until you have all the context. And you need to hyper-focus on one pod, get all of the information, not just a little bit of information, all of the information for the entire pod. And it becomes so much more engaging. I promise you, Wizards, try this once. You will see the engagement with limited go through the roof. People don't want to see random looking. It's unlimited decks. It doesn't do anything. Every now and then, you catch like, you know, someone had a weirdo draft and they're doing something really crazy, and people get excited about that. It sucks that you're going to miss that happening once in a blue moon. It honestly happens once in a blue moon. I can think of like a Paul Rietzel deck that was really insane, maybe in Kaladesh, um, that was a really good grab for the stream and people were really interested in. But that's the last time an event like that springs to mind. The the benefit you're going to get of having the complete information for every pod is going to be worth so much more to your narrative, to your story, and to your viewer engagement. And I'm telling you, this is solved. This is really the way to do this. And if Wizards even, whatever it takes to get this message to them, I'm telling you, try it once and you'll never go back to the other form of limited coverage. This is the solution to this problem. And like to your point too, like this is the low-hanging fruit. This is like step one. Right? This is stuff they can already implement relatively easily. There's so much more they can hard. do after that. It's, it's not even hard. They have the technology right now. They have the resources. The only awkward part is the isolation thing, but it's doable. Yeah. And yeah. I, I don't think you can let people back out into the wild where perfect information is out there. I mean, maybe it's as simple as just taking their phones away. Maybe that's all you have to do. And just like, they don't have to be soundproof, but they have to be a little isolated from... I mean, if they keep broadcasting the pro tour into the venue then they have problems but i think that's a bad idea anyway like they can they can do something else with that i mean you know we kind of moan and groan when pro tours went private but who's really getting the huge upside like a couple hundred people from each pro tour probably not even that it's probably like a hundred spectators max for any pro tour and i understand that's an important experience but i think that this kind of growth is worth 
a lot more. You could still have a public area that doesn't broadcast the Pro Tour. I mean, you can still watch matches. I'm just saying don't have the live feed pumped into the room. That's all. Uh, you can even keep it open. You don't have to isolate it. Let, let people come and watch, but you don't pump the live feed into the room. And I, I think that's enough to make this successful, to make it work, and to just totally fix a portion of the game which has not... There really hasn't been a good way to cover it up until this point, but the answer's out there. And you can do this on day two of GPs, too. Now, day one coverage, still iffy. I don't think you can fix sealed coverage. I'll be honest with you. There, there's just no real good answer there. Um, you know, you, you can focus more on just, like, you pick 10 players at the start of the day and you only show their matches. Maybe that's good. Um, but I don't even know if that's the way to go. I think you just there's problems with sealed. But you can fix draft coverage right now. You can do it. The tools are already out there. Get to work. This one's free. I'll charge you for the next one, Wizards. Wow, I, I'm mind blown. Um, I, <laughs> I'm completely mind blown. I mean, we've given Wizards a lot already, so I think, I think, I think we could start charging relatively soon. <laughs> on the show. Rob, Rob, what do you think of uh, Brian's idea? Yeah, no, I think it's good. I think that you don't need to quarantine the eight people or whatever for. Uh, half the day. I think maybe then the feature pod, they just play with deck list known. Like, they don't know what cards are in the decks, but it's just like a top eight match, right? Like, you, you get to see the deck list sometimes for, for different types of events, and you just if you're in the feature pod, then you, you get the deck. You don't get the, the deck, like how they built the deck, but you get, their, you get their pool, right? You get their pool list, and that way, you don't have to worry about people being sketchy on the sidelines and stuff like that. It already yeah. happens too, Rob, to that point. Like, I remember when I had, I was in the pod one at uh, Pro Tour Origins, and like, I didn't seek out this information. And in fact, after I saw what I was being texted, I didn't look at it. I looked away purposely. But I had like 30 people texting me the deck list, the full deck list of other people in my pod. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not going to take that information. But honestly, when I sat down and, and talked to other people, they were just like, oh, do you know that so-and-so has this card in his deck? And I'm like, yeah, I'm starting to hear that now because every, obviously everyone's getting these same messages. Like, yeah. it's a huge disadvantage for the people who are the featured drafters in those pods. So I, I guess that's a fine way to do it, Rob. I, I really don't object to that. It's a little weird, but for, for the payoff you're getting on coverage, it's worth doing that without question. Yeah, yeah. And it's like not, it's, it's like a marginal... Uh, I don't know, like con for the players. Like you're equally getting information and getting screwed on information, so it's kind of a wash, right? I, I had a quick thought, well, Brian, when you mentioned to bring it back the the whole pushing of arena thing. I wonder, um, actually, Rob, I don't know if you mentioned this, but what about like, will LGS be con concerned if this becomes like the ultimate way to experience magic? The like you, this way of doing draft, you mean? You mean like if arena becomes like the de facto way to play at PTs and stuff like that? If, if it's going to be arena, oh, yeah. Everywhere. If magic focuses on digital, then yes, the LGS should yeah. be great. <laughs> so it, it depends. Like once you start seeing pro tour invites being given out in MTG Arena, like you can play a PTQ. In MTG Arena, and that's not being offered on Magic Online, or they're being co-offered. Then, not soon after, you should you should start thinking about what what their thoughts are on on the paper game, right? Because if they're able to run PTQ level events on a digital format, and people are streaming it using the the uh, the platform to stream a lot, and that's a popular way to to view it, then yeah, obviously they'll want to migrate into that space, but I just I don't know if that's going to be a popular thing, given how complex. Like I think Vince had a lot of arguments here, right? Magic's complexity is in that it's very strategically deep, and right now it looks like Arena, while being a full rules engine, does might might not allow you to explore all the strategic depth uh, that's there. So we'll see where the the competitors, the like the real competitive players, move to. And what Watsy tries to do for like the pro scene, it's going to be a very interesting, you know, five to ten years for MTG. That that I know for certain. <laughs> We're not going to have any shortage of topics to uh, <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> um, all right, that that's our arena talk, and that's our uh, coverage talk. Hopefully, uh, 
so people pass along the messages to Rich. Uh, moving on to uh, this weekend, we've got Ixalan pre-releases, and, and great that, once again, it will be released on MTGO very shortly so that Vince can jump in and figure out the tech card that he wants to pump. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of questions. Um, one of the, what, someone from uh, First Strike Nation, Matt Nelson uh, said, wanted us to know, true or false, Model Red and Teamer are the best sets in the format, and that won't change. Um, even Jacob Wilson wrote an article on Channel Fireball saying, I, I must confess when first looking at most of the spoilers for the new set, the thought that crossed my mind the most was, is this just a commander release with a few standard staples thrown in for good measure? I'm skeptical by nature, but many players I respect have voiced similar opinions. And then in his article, he shows how like there's a lot of cool standard cards, but when compared to other existing powerful cards that are at the same mana cost that already exist in the format, they just do not have the same amount of power. Um, Brian, do you say like little change with uh, once Ixalan becomes legal and standard? There's two parts to this question. The answer is um, the immediacy of Ixalan becoming legal and then the format evolving. Mono Red and Teamer are the best decks week one, unquestionably. They're, they're rooted out. Um, they are just incredibly powerful. And a lot of these other strategies that people are proposing don't line up particularly well against them. But I don't believe that they'll stay the best decks throughout the entire format, especially Mono Red. There, there's tools to answer Mono Red. If this was a two-deck format, then Mono Red would be the deck that was easily hated out. Um, and then the problem would be rug, and then there'd be a deck to exploit that. So, so there will be rotation. It's just the week one baseline strategy. That, yeah, it's Mono Red and Teamer. That's, that's where you should start. If your deck can't beat Mono Red and Teamer, do not play it. It's not viable. And you can't play it week one, you won't win a tournament. So whoever figures out how to win those two matchups in week one is in a really good spot. Uh, then in week two, you can evolve to beat that new deck that beats up on those two matchups. And then in week three, those two matchups are back in play because you've rolled around. And that's how standard works, unless something's absolutely broken. And I think the thing that people forget is that Mono Red is an awesome deck to have be your broken deck. You love to have be that be the limiting factor on the format because there's almost always clean answers to it and, and ways to get ahead of it. And there are, like, you know, when I played Green-White Ramp at the last GP of the season, that's a deck that, on its face, should never, ever, ever be able to beat a deck like Mono Red. It just doesn't line up well. What you're trying to do doesn't really flow against what they're trying to do. But in post-board configuration, when you brought in four Authority, four Carousel, and two Limbala, usually, you were fine. Like, that's, that was plenty to beat them. Is that a huge amount of sideboard slots? Absolutely, without question. But there's still tools to beat Mono Red if you want to, even in these kind of strategies. So, and we already know that Teamer has like a pretty good Mono Red matchup. I don't think anything is in this set that really changes the Mono Red matchup for Teamer. It's still acceptable. So, Mono Red is a great villain. Um, Teamer is a little bit more dicey, but um, I, I think we'll find ways to answer that deck as well. And the format will be just fine. But starting point, Teamer and Red, absolutely. Are you going to start on ramp again? I don't know. There's, there's interesting things with ramp. The payoffs are obviously not as good having lost the Eldrazi. Um, the most interesting thing that I think is going on right now is Sunbird's Invocation. Um, and there's still Approach of the Second Sun as well. So maybe like a Naya ramp deck that is going Sunbird's Invocation into um, Approach of the Second Sun, something like that, won't line up good in Game 1s against Mono Red, but it's probably good post-board. Uh, it'll probably be really good in Game 1s versus Teamer, but be really bad post-board. And the problem is we don't have Oblivion Sower to rely on anymore. I think there are some interested, interesting other ramp cards. We're just lacking payoffs that can kind of bash through Teamer's defenses. I don't know if Carnage Tyrant is... I think that's what the card is called, the, the Hexproof Dinosaur. Yeah. I don't know that if that's the way to go against Teamer or not. If it is, then I think there's other good ways to get to your ramp. You could do something like the, uh, I think it's Treasure Map. That's the artifact that turns into three treasures eventually. And you get, you know, you play a two drop and then eventually you're going to get up to eight mana on like your fifth turn is, is pretty realistic, I think. So um, there, there are options for ramp. I'm not totally sold on them right now. 
And I think Sunbird's Invocation is a speculative card and one that's fairly easy to adapt to. Um, but it is powerful. It's very easy to see how it snowballs in a deck like Ramp, where, you know, you play Sunbird's Invocation, untap, play Approach, get second Sunbird's Invocation, untap, play anything and win the game, basically, at that point. If you ever have two Sunbird's Invocation, it's very difficult to lose. Even the Spring Mind split, if you play Mind, you get the Sunbird's Invocation for six. Um, there's lots of, of nice little synergies there. So uh, there's something to be said for Ramp. There's also Dinosaur Ramp, which I think has some interesting tools as well. Um, but you're going to have to make sure you have plans against Teamer and Red. I don't have them solidified yet, so, uh, you know, without some more time, I couldn't just say play ramp right now, because I don't know exactly what you're doing with your ramp. Yeah, I got you. Um, I don't know. Carnage time, time does seem exciting, um, just because, uh, for those who haven't even looked at spoilers, like six mana, double green, four colorless, Carnage Tyrant can't be countered, got seven, six, trample, and hexproof. So interesting how it, it plays out and how it impacts the metagame. Uh, Rob, were you excited for, for the influx of the XLine cards, or do you see minor impact and, and you don't think it's going to change upstander too much? Yeah, I think the impact is extremely minor at its face anyways. Like, when you look through the, the set and how it's going to affect decks that are already known to be in contention for Tier 1, there are a very few handful of cards that you know are, are in contention to replace um, or take the spot of stuff that's rotating out of uh, out of standard. I think it might be one of the lower powered sets that we've seen in a long time, and you can just see that in the mythics, right? Like none of the mythics are insane. The best mythic is probably Carnage Tyrant, and it's just a six mana Scragnaw that's huge. <laughs> like if they printed this at rare, you you know you wouldn't have thought twice about it. You wouldn't be like, oh man, a seven six trample hexproof that can't be countered. That should have been a mythic. I thought it was rare <laughs> until you said it was a mythic. So there's that. Yeah, like the red mythic is like also feels like very much like a rare. It's a four mana three three that has like. Um, uh, whatever, draw three, discard two at random, stitched onto it, and maybe it becomes a, a five five with with trample. Maybe it's a, a a middling hill giant for four mana. And the planeswalkers are also like very tame as well. Like Jace, Vraska, and Hwatley are all like, you know, could see play, but also if they didn't see play in the entire time they were in standard, you probably also wouldn't be very surprised, right? So. I mean, I think Red gets Lightning Strike, which is actually a, a huge upgrade. It's probably the biggest upgrade to any of the, that any of the known decks got. So like a, just a huge, like such a better replacement for Incendiary Flow, and it like makes you much more happy about uh, losing Falconrath Gorger and having to replace it with like a full set of Soul Scar Mages, um, which is like you know wasn't really great before because you're like not really wanting to run... Uh, you were unable to run a lot of instants unless the format was artifact-heavy, then you were fine running four raids much later in the format. But other than that, there's, like, the 3-2 Black Raid Guide, which is interesting for decks trying to figure out, like, where what Mardu becomes, potentially. Um, and then, like, Approach... Blue Head Approach gets opt. <laughs> and that's, that's pretty much it, really, right? Like, I think... That I, I think that Matt's um, statement about Teamer and Mono Red being the only decks week one are, is incorrect, though. Like, I think week one, the, the decks that will be popular and likely one of each of these will be in the top eight of whatever the, the big event is the first week, uh, the set's legal, is going to be Mono Red for sure, uh, Blue White Approach, some Teamer Energy variant, and then some Black Green Energy variant. I think that deck is also still uh, very good. Like, you know, Walking Ballista. Winding Constrictor, Long Tusk Cub, uh, Glint Sleeve, uh, Siphoner. Like, you know, how, how the deck kind of looked near the end of the format. And that green-black deck might end up being where you want to be in the format going forward, since it's, like, one of the only archetypes that can answer mono-red nicely. <laughs> since it has Vraska's Contempt in it, uh, and it can race it with, like, a, a Long Tusk Cub and a, and a Ballista that can get out of control. But we'll see. I don't know. Like 
there's not really a great answer to Hazard right now. So I know that the first deck I'm going to start testing is going to be mono red for sure. And I, I've already drawn up some lists and the deck looks great <laughs> as it did before. <laughs> so yeah, it'll be interesting. I think if you're looking to invest in a deck uh, and you need to buy something now, I think mono red's a, a good place to be. I think it'll be tier one for the entire time that it's in standard. Um, not going to talk about specifics because obviously I'm severely outclassed by the two people on each side of me to talk about standard, but um, just as a general note, people that complain about sets being lower powered, um, it's kind of required in order for Magic to continue as a game without having like this ridiculous amount of power creep that would just make the game virtually unplayable in the long term, so... If you don't have sets that are worse than sets before it, you can't have sets that are better, and you can't really function as a game long-term, because if you keep trying to make every set better than the last set, think about, you know, like, Mirrodin block, and how many sets ago that was, and if we wanted, and if every set since Mirrodin was better than Mir or Urza's block, right? These sets would be completely out of control, and everything that's at least three years old would be completely unplayable garbage in every format if you kept having every set be better than the last one. I know Marl wrote an article about this like probably four or five years ago where he talked about how he likes to kind of go up a few times and then down one and then up a few times and then down one. Um, and you kind of see a slow power creep. You've kind of seen it with creatures, especially over the last, I want to say, five to ten years. Creatures have just like objectively become better. Like the standard for a common three drop is now like a three three. And that used to very much not be the case in certain colors anyway. Um, but yeah, you, you have to have this happen, and you have to be okay with this if you care about the health of sort of the long-term prospects for Magic. Like, you can't have every set be better than the last one. And people that people are going to say, well, you can at least have them as good, and good luck designing a set where everything is an equal power level to the last set. Like, if you can do that, you are a genius, and you should be designing literally every magic card for the future of, of MTG, but this is just a much safer and more comfortable way for Watsi to manage power creep, and it's basically required, so this is the nature I, of the beast. I kind of disagree. Oh. Ooh, I love it. <laughs> so, I, here's a good example. They didn't do it this time, which is why it's kind of annoying. Um, but when Shadows came out, like, Zombies, there was a bunch of Zombies cards, but they were, like, in the background. Like, none of them were good. Sometimes people would play Relentless Dead, sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes Cryptbreaker would show up in, like, um, Prized Amalgam discard graveyard decks or whatever. Sometimes it wouldn't. Um, and those decks were, like, kind of, like, Tier 3 on the fringe or whatever. And then they released Amonkhet, which, compared to Kaladesh, is super underpowered, but it brought, like, just enough Zombie Synergy cards that the set looked really powerful because it made this, the Zombies cards from before like way more relevant than they were, right? Like they just didn't have critical mass for that deck to exist. So I think that's what they kind of need to do is that there needs to be at least like one or two new decks that, you know, the building blocks were seeded a year ago, but they weren't going to pick up. And you, when you release the new set, you're able to just like give it enough of a push that there's some interest there. So, like, you're not really, like, creating overpowered cards. You're just creating, like, a small subset of, like, synergy-based... Yeah, where, like, the, the power level actually mostly exists in the in the previous block or the block before that, um, but they seem bad because they didn't have the critical mass to be useful, right? Um, but right now, like, they, they're pushing Merfolk, but there was, like, no Merfolk on the last two blocks. So, like, all these merfolk are kind of irrelevant, right? And vampires, like, where were the vampires in the last two blocks? Like, they're just, like, not really there for the most part, right? So, like, if they would have planned better that way, then you, you're not, like, you don't have to have overpowered sets, underpowered sets. You just have sets where, like, it's highlighting stuff from the past. So it feels like the set's not complete trash because it's enabling cards that you just had sitting around in your collection, you know? So basically what you're saying is you need every block or set to daisy chain off of every previous sort of block in order, in some manner, so that bad cards can still sort of see the light of day once a new set rotates, when, I mean, when I, a set I think, is underpowered. Yeah, I think they have enough time between blocks where, like, they can see the effect of Kaladesh, because they're obviously like, putting cards in the file and in the, in the sets, right? 
for like hoping that maybe they see standard play, right? So then maybe they see a couple decks that they thought might materialize that don't, and then they just give them a little bit of a, a kickstart like two blocks later, and now all of a sudden like those new cards seem very powerful and interesting, but they're not, because when that old block rotates, they just go back to being bulk rares again. I think what you're saying in theory sounds awesome. Good luck designing sets that do that in a perfect way such that when you bring the two sets together, the, the new deck you've built, like Zombies, isn't too strong or too weak, while having completely separate top-down ideologies for each block. Like, oh, this is Pirates versus Dinosaurs. Now the next set somehow has to be like, hey, Dinosaurs are still cool, but we're on Dominaria now, and they just showed up here. Like, it, it's kind of difficult to manage that. But I get what you're saying. In an ideal world, you kind of have, like, fringe playable cards that need help from one set that get helped by the by future sets. What we don't want is the stuff from Amonkhet, where we had things like Gate to the Afterlife, which referenced a card that didn't exist yet. <laughs> and that's kind of the, like, boneheaded version of what you're talking about, where they're just like, we don't know how to, how to do this the correct way, so we're just literally going to write the text of a card that doesn't currently exist on a card. So hopefully they don't take your advice too literally, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Yeah, that would be the actual literal interpretation, I guess. <laughs> um, Nationals is only a few weeks away. Rob, is there any chance that ICU casting spell swindle? Uh, at Nationals, I would say that there are fewer things that are closer to 0% than me. What? Isn't, isn't there what? a limited portion? Oh, is there? Yeah. I'm not going to take that card in limited. <laughs> it's so good. Five mana. It doesn't. It, it, that's the one that creates treasures, right? It's a five mana yeah. mana drain. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's probably better than mana drain, but um, I mean, at, at five mana, oh, like, sure. The effect is better than a mana yeah, drain. Yeah, it's definitely effect, better. It's definitely better. Even yeah. that it's five mana, I guess it should be. Um, yeah, that's not a. I don't like five mana counter spells in limited, so I probably won't be taking it and. I don't think, uh, like, that's a control card, and the Canadian Nationals is, like, week two of standard, if I remember correctly. And, yeah, there's just no way I'm going to play a control deck, because the metagame is going to be so undefined, even if I have a, I think I have a really good idea of what, it, what it's going to look like, um, that I, I don't want uh, to be bringing a control deck, because you just don't know what your answer package should be. Hmm. Well, Nationals is going to be, uh, people can check it out for Canadian Nationals. All the information is on mtgnationals.ca, uh, along with, uh, it's not just going to be Nationals, it's going to be, in terms of like, it's not just going to be the main event, there's an open plus on the Sunday and a bunch of different side events. Uh, and just like, as if it was a GP, uh, day one is four rounds of standard, followed by three rounds of Ixalan booster draft. Day two has three rounds of Ixalan draft, followed by two rounds of standards. You're playing 6-6. Six, six. So hopefully Rob will uh, cruise his way to the championship and be crowned the, I don't know, na not really the national champion because I guess Eduardo is the captain, but I mean, you could... You, I guess you're also the champion, but not the captain. Face-to-face -face <laughs> World Team Nationals Qualifier Canada. <laughs> I, like, I like that Carr is only backing Rob, though. I respect that. He just has no interest in me doing well at this national. Are you going to play, Vince? There's like an 80% chance I play. Yeah, yeah. You have 500 Planeswalker points? Wow! <laughs> yes, I had 500 Planeswalker points last oh, year. I have 1,200, dude. I my, play my, a lot of magic. Well, I'm surprised. I'm actually surprised. My my friend, my close friend Justin Richardson, is like missing five or ten points. So uh, sad for him. Um, He's missing ten points from five hundred. Yeah, because he doesn't play at all. So he's really good. Um, apparently, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a respected player. Um, so uh, quick shout outs to our first strike nation producer Jonathan Good, Kalsmer, Chick, Derek Pike, Matthew Kelly. Asian Merchants, Isaiah Carrero, and other people that uh, choose to remain unnamed, unknown. Uh, shout out to the entire First Strike Nation for making this all possible. And uh, we're excited to bring you, whether it's like new standard decks or new draft strategies. So that's going to be pretty cool. 
And I don't think and that's it for the show. Uh, who's who's playing pre-releases this weekend? Definitely. I think I'm going to play one. Actually, Brian's probably not. No chance. <laughs> no chance I play a pre-release. Um, He's too cool for them. I will probably start... Um, once really I like to do most of my deck building on Moto, it's just much more convenient for me. Once the set goes up, probably on Wednesday, I'm assuming is when it'll be uploaded uh into Moto, even if it's not it's available Monday, no? yet. I thought they were doing the Monday releases going well, forward. Well no no, it, it will release on Monday, but the actual like card file should go in on Wednesday so you can access the card in deck builder even if they aren't like available for purchase yet. Yes. Uh um, and that's that's where I like to build decks for the most part. All these other annoying programs don't work for me. So once that happens, um, you'll see me start posting probably a, a dump of decks over in the First Strike Nation. Good reason to be a Patreon come release time. I, I think, you know, I I don't know if you would say we got there with Ramp. Like, it was kind of a fringe player for most of the format, but... Uh, I know a lot of people got queued off of it. A lot of people, you know, had GP success. And if you were in the First Strike Nation, you had it day one, well before everyone else. A much better list than everyone else. We were we were much closer in the early days than other people. Even the green white version we had, like in, in on day one, which we kind of backed away from because the red green version was so good. I mean, the green white version looked pretty similar to the list at the end of the format. Uh, so you really could have had the sauce on day one if you had it stuck to that half of the equation. Um, but yeah, I definitely encourage people to get into the first strike mission. Uh, there's a lot of people who I think it's kind of changed their their magic lives uh, and and led them to some great things. So this this release is a prime time to join. Yeah, just to, just a little addendum there. Rob and I are also going to be doing. We did a cheat sheet for your pre-release last set, which was our devastation. We're going to do one for Ixalan as well, and hopefully we'll get some more detailed videos out there talking about card evaluations and stuff too. So whether you are playing standard or limited, there will be a plethora of information available to you. So make sure you check it out. Yeah, we're probably going to do that like soon. Tonight? Maybe maybe today. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I also agree. I'll second joining the Patreon and Sweet. Uh, every set, someone new that's joined has queued so it's almost like if you join you're in a random draw to be qualified for the program <laughs> so, that's exactly how it works oh my god so so uh, get in there and put your name put your name in the hat it's the only way <laughs> i bring it out down um okay so for all of us we will see you next monday with some of our early uh, pre-release uh, stories if for, for those of us who are playing. So we'll see you there. Bye, guys.